All right. Okay, go ahead and remain standing for the authority of God's Word. The authority of Scripture is in your worship guide. But if you would like to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, um, just know that you are able to do that now. It would be great. So either in the worship guide or in 1 Peter if you want to turn to your Scriptures. And at the end of uh, God's Word, uh, we are going to say what is in bold in your worship guide. So this is God's Word. In this you rejoice now for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved with various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For all flesh is like grass. Amen and amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Okay, so welcome to First Peter. We are now a couple weeks into this thing. And let me just remind you that uh, Peter opens with our identity. So we've come through verses 1 through 5. And what Peter is trying to do is he's saying to us our identity is in Christ Jesus. And the reason he wants to do this is because he wants our roots to go very, very deep in who we are before he is going to call us to action. Because he's about to call us into action. Remember, uh, Paul Tripp calls this, these are fighting words of First Peter. But he wants us to realize in the first five verses, like who we are and where we are sure. And that comes, that comes in the resurrection of Jesus. That our living hope is in Jesus as well as this idea that we are now, we're walking toward our inheritance that is undefiled. So are trials going to come? Is suffering going to come to this, these churches in modern-day Turkey? The answer is yes, but rooted deep down is this idea that Paul or Peter really wants to know where we are and where we stand and our roots to grow deep. So we have resurrection, right? This living hope that's ours. And then we have this inheritance that is undefiled and unperishable. And then we have trials. And it's a little bit like whiplash here in verse 6. This idea of living hope and this grand inheritance and then trials. And so why is that? Because this is the emphasis of the book. So we've arrived at verse 6. And this is the emphasis of First Peter. Is that we are going to face trials. And yet in this we are to rejoice in our trials. And that's the conundrum, or there, that's the paradox of our passage. This idea that the people who call on Jesus are able to rejoice in trials. So here's a little experiment class. What are the things that we rejoice in? What are the things that get us going um, uh, in, to really make us excited? How do we rejoice just in general? Well, I bet if you're married in here that on your wedding day, there was a little woot-woot, right? 
All right, I've been to a lot of your weddings, right? It was, it was a good day. We rejoice in that. It was a wonderful day. You rejoice that after 40 years of being in the desert, when your Georgia Bulldogs finally, finally topple uh, somebody. So, I mean, do you see all the co- go dogs? That's right. I don't know who said that, but uh, give that man. Uh, all right. So you see the confetti and there are flags and there's just smiles. You rejoice. All right. This is the Experian Boost app, right? Which I don't know, but this is a commercial or something. I don't, I don't know, but this is the expression that happens when your credit goes up or something like that. This is what you do. You rejoice. All right. And we are in the Olympic season. This is what we do. So we rejoice. We know, understand what that is. Now let me ask you a question. What are the things that go on when there's discomfort? What happens or what is around you when, it, when you're forced to maybe honk your horn? Right? What's going on? What is it uh, when you slam the phone down? Actually, you don't do that anymore. That tells you I was a kid and... I had girlfriends in the 80s, just slim. All right, so what happens when you hang up the phone, right? It's just not as much fun, kids, you know, to hit the red button. It's just not as fun as when you were able to hang up. What happens when you curse under your breath? What are, what are, the, what are the agitations there when you huff and you puff and you blow the house down? How do you act? What are the things that happen? So in the office, at, at the church office, uh, we have terrible coffee, all right? And so we just have the worst coffee in the world. And so if you want to bless and love on your staff, you can, you can bring really good coffee to our office and we would, we would never turn it away. But we have really bad coffee. And so a staff member was just tired of it. And so she went and she bought really good coffee for our staff meeting, right? And she was just done. And so we're drinking this unbelievable coffee and it's great. And so our staff meeting is about an hour and a half or so. And after an hour and a half, I lift up my cup and it's dripping. It's because these millennials right? And all of their, like, their attitude of the, toward the environment. They're trying to drink out of recycled stuff that disintegrates in an hour, and it's leaking. My coffee cup is leaking. And so I start talking like, oh, can you believe this? My cup is leaking, and now I've got to clean it up, right? And so this is just a small fraction. So I have gone toward being frustrated at the coffee, to cleaning up the mess, to just, just like, putting tons of pejoratives toward millennials and their just love for the environment. I mean, just all in one second, right? And this is just coffee, right? In the middle of the day, because that's usually how something happens when we're agitated, right? You immediately start accusing. So in verse six, you see this verse, in this you rejoice, right? That you are going to face or you're gonna be grieved by various trials. And here we have two worldviews that are in place. Because you know of your salvation, Peter tells us. And because you know the salvation is secure and glorious and beyond any comprehension, we want you, dear Christian, we want you to be able to, when trials come your way, especially those trials that are coming at you because you're walking with Jesus, we want you to be able to rejoice. That is one worldview that Peter is trying to give us in verse six. But then there's the other worldview that is a lot more like my coffee cup, 
is that when you, right, when you expect the entire universe to supposed to know what makes you happy or makes you unhappy, the whole universe is supposed to make you understand what makes you sing and happy and in a great mood and are or, or or going to avoid everything that brings discomfort into your life. And if it happens, on the contrary, you will just let them have it. These are the two worldviews that are here in our passage this morning. Because discomfort is com- coming. Trials are coming. And it's how we respond as God's people. You see the difference? What Peter is asking us should seem impossible. That trials, when they land in your lap, true trials, true suffering, that because of this inheritance of Jesus, somehow the resurrected Jesus gives us the ability to rejoice. And yet that seems practically unattainable. That's how he opens the letter. That's the emphasis of the book. Not if trials come, but when they come, what do God's people do? And this isn't the first time we've seen Peter do something like this. Remember in the very first verse, he brings these two words that start with E up and he brings them in exact, on the exact same level. That you are elect out of the foreknowledge of God and then you are also exiles. And in our electness, right, in the character and nature of God, he's brought us into being his people, right? We're comfortable with that. But then the exiles and he pairs them together perfectly. And in the same way, we want you to rejoice in your suffering. It's not either or, it's both. And so we're elect exiles. We are worshiping strangers. And now we are rejoicing sufferers. I told you, we need to buckle up because these are not hard words whatsoever. But Peter is trying to get to that. So throughout history, men and women of faith have had unshakable faith and they were able to hold these two ideals simultaneously, that you can rejoice despite your suffering, that with trial and joy, they can come together. As one poet said, joy and woe are woven fine. And so if you want a title for this message, it's joy and woe woven fine. Peter doesn't want his audience to be caught off guard at the pressures that they are experiencing. So therefore, as a good pastor, right, Peter is trying to walk with his people to give them an expectation that difficulties are going to come and we have an obligation to respond in a certain way. So six through nine, we're gonna have just see three teaching points, right? Three teaching points. First is that various trials will come, right? That's, that's kind of the intro, but that's the reality. The, the trials are gonna come. Number two, that they have a purpose, right? It's not just out there, it's not just, but there's a purpose to it. And we're going to find that in six through nine. And then just uh, we'll spend a little bit more time talking about this paradox. So let's jump. Let's jump into verse number one. Various trials will come. So uh, what exactly are trials, right? We have to get a handle on what exactly a trial is and what Peter is trying to tell us. Right? So he tells us there are various trials that are going to come to us, verse 6. Various is simple. It means many colored or diverse. And so there's all shades of suffering that can come our way. Later on in the, in the book, 
Peter is going to talk about specific trials, specific sufferings that will land in your lap because you are following Jesus. And some of the rub and some of the friction actually come because you are obeying Jesus. This is a little bit more generic. These are just the trials in life here. But the trials of barrenness, that's quite the trial, isn't it? A trial of singleness is a trial. Stresses at work and school, those can be trials. Trials can be personal, right? As in divorce. Could be as global as war, but they're trials that are all around us. And so in a sense of verse four, if you want to go ahead and pull that down here, our inheritance and our resurrection, anytime that resurrection or that inheritance is fractured, this unfading part actually starts to fade or this undefiled part actually starts to defile. There you have this idea of what a trial is. So I want you to look at Hebrews 3 for me. This is what Hebrews 3 will tell us. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of your testing. And that's the word that First Peter uses here. On the day of your testing in the wilderness. What's going on here? Well, in Hebrews, they're trying to tell us that we were being reminded of a time when God's people were without a home. Remember in the day of your testing in the wilderness. These people are without a home, right? They are sojourners, meaning that in the context in which the Israelites found themselves in the wilderness, they missed out on two things, power and position. That's simply because they were in the wilderness, the things that natives got were power and position, and these people missed out on those two big things. This was not your home. And just not being from there, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that this is a type of testing or a trial. How about Galatians? Galatians three or 4 says this, You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial... Um, a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise, but you received me. Do you see it in there? You see the same word that Peter is using. Here's Paul is using to the church of Galatians, this idea of a trial, this idea of something physically that happened to, to him. Reminder, just a little context here. One of Paul's stops on his first missionary journey was in Galatia. They took Paul, they drug him out of the town and they stoned him. Good thing for context, right? So now we understand that the church of Galatia understood that Paul himself physically, right, went underneath this trial simply for following Jesus. So in the first context, there's some social trials that are happening, some social sufferings. This one is more physical. This idea that physically, because of what he stood or how he stood with Jesus, he under, underwent this. Let's go to the Gospels. Let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Same word. This idea here in 1 Peter is now seeing a scene on Jesus's lips here where Jesus is praying and in conflict with the devil. And in this temptation, he's, he's tempted to flee the cross. Let this cup pass from me. And what happened? Peter was there. 
Peter, the one who wrote 1 Peter, was there. And he was one of the ones that were being rebuked by Jesus. And Peter slept. Could you not be awake for just an hour? So here, a trial means that you are under an encounter or a direct attack from the devil himself. Social trials, physical trials, spiritual attacks. These, this is what really matters socially, physically, spiritually, right? Also known as socially, like just a general trials. Physically, the specifically, because of your relationship with Jesus and more direct spiritual attacks, that's Ephesians 6. So this is what he, Peter is trying to tell, not if, but when this comes. And that's why Peter says at the end of the book, he says, be sober-minded and watchful. Be sober-minded and watchful. Peter simply wants us to be aware that if you're following Jesus, there'll be multicolored, different, and various trials that will come our way. Will. Various trials will come. He doesn't want us to be blindsided by that. Trials will come. Peter wants us to put trials in the category of our faith walk. He doesn't want it to be, these things to be avoided. He wants them, whatever they are, social, um, physical, or spiritual, and he wants those things to be a part of your faith walk. And yet with a coffee cup that's dripped, we just try to fix it. We try to clean it up. Or we just fuss when those kinds of things happen. Our immediate response is to try to run from it or cover for it. Peter does not want that to happen. He wants it to be a spiritual endeavor. When the trials come, how does your faith respond? I'm very ashamed of myself in the first six weeks of 2022. Various trials have come and landed on my lap and I have, I have faced those things out of flesh and out of comfort. Have it run to Jesus in the way that I should have. That's our, our response. It's so easy to do that. Paul, Peter is trying to redirect our attention. So number two, but trials have a purpose, okay? I mean, trials have a pur uh, purpose. Just look at our passage. You see that little phrase, right? And there is a result, right? And so just in the text, we see that there is a result and the result is something that has a purpose and has strength and is not on accident. We may be uncomfortable realizing that trials that we face are by div divine design. We hate the idea of that. And so what function do they serve, right? We want you to look at verse seven, just stare at verse seven because that's where we're gonna be in the second point. And this idea that there is a results oriented there and it, the results may surprise us. We know that these trials are not arbitrary, but instead they're what I call rife with purpose, rife with design. Because what if they were random? What if they were purposeless? That's when we start to lose heart. And so let's go quickly through some of this idea of what this purposes are. So just number one, all right, this idea that, there's, that these trials have limitations, right? Look at this little phrase, and for a little while, right? They should bring us some comfort, that they're not omnipresent. So whatever the trial that you have in your life, it has limitations. Can we say amen to that? 
Have you ever been in the fog? Have you ever been in the darkness? Have you ever been just full of pain? And then one day the light came, right? That's just because there's limited. Now you may be called into a trial that even lasts your entire life though. But even that is, has its limitations because verse four is still very strong that our inheritance is still imperishable. There is something, this trial, this thing, that this weight that will never lift maybe, right? But there's still something that we have a living hope, but they, they have their limitations. And for that, we're so very grateful. And so this is how Peter will end his book, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. So here in the bookends of this letter, chapter one and chapter five. He just, a good pastor, walks toward his people. And I want you to know that after you have suffered a little while, verse 10 says this, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore. Who needs that word this morning? Who needs that morning that whatever trial you're in, that in a little while, God himself in eternal glory of Christ Jesus will himself restore, strengthen, and establish you. I know I need that. It has, it's limited. Number two, right? Trials strengthen our faith. Look at that gold analogy. Look at this idea of what it does for our faith in verse seven. Our faith is strengthened in the trials we endure. Do you want to have strong faith? This verse says that with strong faith, there actually has to be endurance through the trials. Notice it is not, if you want strong faith, survive the trial. But this idea of this genuine faith, this purity of faith, this strength of faith is that how we endure this trial. If our faith is to be purified, it must be stress tested. It must be stress tested. And so that's why he gives us this analogy, this idea of a gold in a furnace. It's like putting gold into a fire to prove its genuineness. And so too is our faith. It must go into the furnace. Our faith must be put to the test. It's not if, it's when. And what is our response to that? And if your response is not, I desire to endure, that's wrong. Trials shouldn't surprise us. Peter is trying to say that we should not start to doubt God's faithfulness when trials come and land on our lap. Instead, ready, steady, we anticipate that they are going to head our way. Our way. And so the, this crucible of faith, is coming our way. Nick, Nick, uh, sorry, uh, Nick Ripkin in his book, and he says some things that are outlandish, and this is one of them. And he says the world, what the worldwide church needs is we don't need to send our best and our brightest to seminary. Instead, we need them to be arrested for their faith and to spend six months in jail. It's crucible. He's not wishing hardship, but he's wishing hardship. He's saying the outlandish, 
so that we understand not about ourselves, but about our faith. This is not character building. This is faith building. Trial, trials are an amazing teacher. And so why do we move so quickly to compare our trials to other people's? Why do we move so quickly to move to comfort rather than endurance? Why do we try to escape the trials that are here? The reason we compare, the reason we control, the reason that we try to escape is we do not see those trials as spiritual and divine and an opportunity and a classroom with a teacher to teach us what faith is and where endurance may lie. He tells us that there's a smelting process that is good for us. This refining process that is good for us. How many of us out of rebellion and tears have shaken our fists and said, Lord, that is not fair. Because it's true. It's not fair. But there's something else going on in the depth and the darkness and the pain and the discomfort. Because our Heavenly Father knows our flesh is weak, He's trying to move us to take a step of something miraculous, actually something supernatural. And he actually wants to prove himself to us over and over and over that he is faithful. And so with this intense heat that actually burns away these impurities, what is left after what... uh, we call hellish temperatures. What we get is a purified metal. Only afterwards, only after the heat of verse seven, only afterwards do we see what is right and true and precious. It is only then that jewelers' eyes began to sparkle because jewelry is being made in that process. It's only when Wall Street investors begin to get all puffed up because that's when the bullion has been made. So what purpose is this trial? The purpose of trial, quite simply, is to burn away the junk, to burn away all of the impurities. Do we want to welcome them? No, right? But when we're in them, It's an opportunity to burn away. And so our trial and our test is this exam or our exam with this really rich metaphor. Because what does a jeweler do with a block of ore? It's worth almost nothing. It's just a paperweight at best. And yet when he purifies it, right? When it is strengthened, when there is beauty, when it's, there's utility, it comes into something that we love. So I want you to think about your very favorite piece of jewelry. What's your favorite piece of jewelry and why? It could be your engagement ring. It could be a brooch from your grandmother. 
could be a Rolex from your grandfather that he gave you at graduation. We're all adorned in some way. And we love these pieces of jewelry, but we love them in the state they're in now. We do not love them in their original state. They had to go through a process before they landed in your lap for you to enjoy them. The only reason we love them is because this metal has been put to the test, white hot test. Peter says that there's a different worldview that we should all embrace. And this worldview is something that we rejoice in various trials because it's spiritual. So this is a piece of Japanese art. And the reason I bring it to you this morning is because it's pottery, right? And it's on purpose, it is, it is broken, right? And then it is put together and bonded with real gold. The only reason this is beautiful and the only reason this is useful and the only reason that this is strong is because it was first broken and then welded together with a precious metal. We tend to run away from our trials, don't we? We try to control our trials, don't we? We try to compare our trials, don't we? We try to escape our trials. What Peter is trying to tell us this morning is that the purpose, our true purpose, is the praise and the honor and the glory of him. Read this in verse seven with me. So that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it has been tested by fire, may be found to result, what? In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to turn to Revelation 5. And then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell, fell down before the lamb, hold, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song and the new song sounded like this. 
worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain and by your blood, you are ransomed the people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and that shall reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands and thousands saying in a loud voice, worthy to the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the 24 living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. This is what we'll do for all eternity. And in verse seven, he says, in that exact same response, when trials come your way, that same response is possible in the middle of your trial. Let's not wish them away. Let's not run from them, but engage appropriately is a place that will strengthen our faith. And lastly, really quickly, this idea that at the beginning of our passage, it says rejoice. And at the end of our passage, it says with joy inexpressible. This paradox of rejoicing and suffering. This idea that trials and joy can be bound together And why do I know that? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says very clearly, for the joy set before him, he did what? He endured the cross. And so was there a smile on Jesus' face? No. But there was a joy knowing that with deep obedience to the Father and the ransom of the saints through his blood, that this paradox could come together forever. This idea of suffering and worship are forever entwined because the the cross of Jesus Christ. And even in Revelation 5, we understand the slain lamb. It will forever be burned into our memories. What Jesus Christ has done for us. Though you do not see him, you love him. That's how our passage ends today. Though you do not see him, you love him. Peter was able to see him. Peter was able to see the resurrected Christ. Peter was able to see, just feel the embrace of Jesus saying, feed my sheep. And he says to the churches of Turkey, and he says to the church here at Redstone Church, you haven't seen him. And I understand your plight. And I understand that that's a trial. And that's part of your suffering is that you haven't seen 
what I have seen. And though you love him, even though you haven't seen him, you believe in him. And in this space or in this blindness, our faith and our strength and our worship is still strong. Peter is trying to champion the church. Suffering is not if, but when. So how do we respond? And that's the application today. It's very simple. It's very simple. So how do you respond? When trials come your way, how do we respond? inside the trials. What do we do in our response? I want you to list on your worship guide just the last trial that you went through. Maybe you're going through one right now. One that is specific. One that is physical. Maybe just a generic or a general one. A spiritual trial, a physical trial, right? Whatever it is, I just want you. And then I want you to, as I have done this week, is to then ask yourself some hard questions about your response to that trial. Because that's the classroom of faith, especially enduring faith. Is can we cling and can we worship despite our discomfort? So think about that Japanese pottery and think about all of those broken pieces that somehow, some way, but the great craftsman is able to make something beautiful despite the brokenness. And so King Jesus, we come to you now asking you to bind up what is broken. We also ask forgiveness, Lord. I wanna ask forgiveness for where I have moved toward comfort or rationalization or comparing. Father, where I've just tried to avoid suffering rather than seeing it as a very spiritual classroom that you have set up for me. I pray that First Peter and some of our community groups are actually memorizing First Peter. Lord, I pray that First Peter gets deep into our hearts. May this living, breathing, these living, breathing words cut us deeply. Will they expose us even now? And so King Jesus, I want you. I want you to be the one that we give our credit and our praise and our glory and our honor to. Forgive us for our distractions and stop looking to you and looking to other things, but help us to worship you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And sometimes that author brings in conflict and difficulty and trial toward us. And we pray, Jesus, that we would not avoid them, but we will embrace them, Lord. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So this is a time in our service in which we usually, uh, we, we gather up around the Lord's table. Um, supply and demand has reached the communion uh, trucks. So um, they're out there somewhere. Um, they just aren't here. And, um, and so we're not given a way to actually respond and to, to walk toward faith, like bodily respond toward that. But I would like for us to go ahead and stand. And I would want us to just um, 
commune with the Lord. And so I'm going to give us about a minute uh, to commune with the Lord. And so in silence, just in how you would normally respond, even if you had the elements, we just want you to spend an hour, or an hour, that would be a long, that'd be a long <laughs> communion. Just one minute uh, in silence, just asking the Lord, how should I respond today? 